The song says, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. <laughs> That's how I know he lives. There is a, a special power that God gives the one who believes. The one who says, yes, Lord. It is through that surrender. It is through accepting that invitation that we are then we are then such that becomes the embodiment of Jesus Christ. He lives within us. We are little Christs. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And it is through that experience that we feel Jesus Christ in a very real way. I invite you this morning to the resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians 15. That will be our text this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, we will look at verses 1 through 22 this morning, and I'll begin by reading the first 11 verses, and then a little later in the message, we will pick up at verse 12. I've entitled this message, The Resurrection, Vain or Valid? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. The resurrection, vain or valid, I'm asking you. And I believe the Apostle Paul was also asking in a sense, the Corinthians. Now, it is nearly impossible to read through the accounts of the early church without noticing the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, for example, we find reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ at least 25 times. Twelve times in the book of Acts, we find the words, God raised Okay, now, they're not exactly in, in that right next to each other, God raised. But as you diagram the sentence like you would do in school, 
God would be the noun and raised would be the verb. God raised, we find that 12 times in Acts. We also find uh, the word resurrection 10 times. That is resurrection as it refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also find the words rose, rise, risen, uh, one time each. So I I say at least 25 times in the book of Acts, we have reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the sermons that we read in Acts chapters 2 through 7, they all center on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not on his suffering, not on his cross experience, not on his death, but they center on the resurrection. Now, why is that? Well, the Jews of the day, and this is generally speaking, the average Jew of the day, they believed that Jesus died. However, they did not believe that Jesus was alive. Okay, so I want you to just remember again, go back to our lesson. Actually, we didn't have these verses in our lesson, but from Matthew 28, the story there, Matthew's account of the resurrection, you remember how there was fear that Jesus would not be in the tomb. Okay, and so, and so the chief priests and the elders, they, they said, look, we need to do something, you know, we need to do something. We don't want word to get out that, that Jesus has risen. And so what did they do? I find this ironic because of national news this past week. They paid large hush payments. They paid large hush payments. These were paid by religious people. Okay, There was also some hush payments that were paid out supposedly by a religious person uh, that was in the news this past week. Anyway, large amounts of money were paid out to keep the soldiers quiet. Don't say what actually happened. Instead, say that the disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and stole his body away. And then we will secure you before Pilate. And so Matthew goes on to write that this was commonly reported even into the day he was writing. Okay, so that was, that was what was going around town. That was the word that Jesus had died, but there was not belief that Jesus was risen, that Jesus was alive. And so I say many of the references in the book of Acts were in defense of Jesus' resurrection, proving his death, proving his burial, but more importantly, stronger than that, proving that he was alive, that he rose from the dead. Well, not only were many of the Jews skeptical, but the Greeks were too. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in this passage. We're right in the middle of Greek culture and Greek philosophy. And believe it or not, not even Corinth Christian Fellowship (laughs) was immune to this skeptical attitude. Notice verse 12. Paul writes, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead. Can you believe that? 
I say not even Corinth Christian Fellowship was completely immune from this idea. Now, I understand that the Greeks, in general, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. I understand that most Greek philosophers considered the human body to be somewhat of a prison, in that they welcomed death as a deliverance from that bondage, a very warped view of the end of man. Now, I want you just to turn back for just a moment to Acts chapter 17 and note the response Note the response here of the Greeks. When Paul was preaching there in Athens on Mars Hill, he's confronting the Greeks about matters of the resurrection of the dead. In verse 18 of Acts 17, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so, so the Greeks are saying, I wonder what this guy is going to say. And they're making mockery of this thing. Now, move to verse 30. And this is the end of, of Paul's little discourse there on Mars Hill. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. In other words, they laughed at him. There were those who jeered at him for, for showing certainty in the resurrection of the dead. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And so that is a very typical response, I understand, of the Greeks. There was, there was, there was no certainty in the resurrection of the dead. In, in, in fact, they, they believed against it. Well, this skeptical attitude had somehow invaded the church there at Corinth. And knowing the Apostle Paul, no, he didn't let this slide, but he had to face it head on. And in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, we have some of that. So, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a convincing defense for the resurrection of the dead, proving, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the subsequent resurrection of all believers. And so the one is foundational to the next. I want you to get that. But he begins by laying a foundation, showing, proving the certainty of Christ's resurrection. Therefore, the next will flow out of that. Now, as we look at these first 11 verses, we're going to note here proofs of Christ's resurrection and I'm going to give three proofs that the Apostle Paul notes. The first is salvation, their own salvation. Secondly is the scriptures, that is, the Old Testament scriptures. And thirdly, the other S word is seen. Okay, so we could say eyewitnesses. But here, in fact, we find the word seen five times. And so... Christ's resurrection is proved, it's validated by their own salvation, by the Old Testament scriptures, and then 
the fact that he was seen by eyewitness accounts. And then as we move on later into the message, the Apostle Paul goes on to debunk the Greeks' false philosophy that there is no resurrection of the dead by exposing the silliness of their supposition. Okay, now that's, that's a lot of words, but we'll get to it in a bit, okay? He's going to expose the silliness of their supposition. But let's first of all dig in here to these proofs of Christ's resurrection that we find in the first few verses. And the first, once again, is that their own salvation proved the validity of Christ's resurrection. Now, sometime earlier, the Apostle Paul had come to Corinth, and he had preached the message of the gospel, and the people had believed, and their faith had transformed their lives. I would say that the church at Corinth may have been one of the Apostle Paul's greatest success stories. Now, why do I say that? Well, I want you to consider for just a moment the scene at Corinth. What the city was like, what the atmosphere was like in Corinth. And I quote, Corinth was a polluted city filled with every kind of vice and worldly pleasure. Sexual immorality of all kinds was rampant. About the lowest accusation you could make against a man in that day would be to call him a Corinthian. People would know who you were talking about. Corinth was also a proud philosophical city with many itinerant teachers promoting their speculations. And so I say that the church of Corinth may have been one of the Apostle Paul's greatest success stories. And yet it wasn't through the power of the Apostle Paul that this church was established. Oh, he had a part in leading people to Christ. He had a part in preaching and teaching the gospel. But it was not through his power that the church was established. It was through the power of the gospel. It was through the power of the gospel. In Romans 1, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein Where? In the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the power, the power that was present did not come so much from the Apostle Paul, but it came through Jesus Christ. Now, as was mentioned, Calvin preached a message here last Sunday entitled, What is the Gospel? And he referred to these verses here in verses 3 and 4. And I ask you again, What is the gospel? So these people were changed, it says, by the power of the gospel. What is the gospel? And here in verses 3 and 4, we have that described in a nutshell. It is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. There it is. That is the gospel. That is good news because it is news that promises deliverance. It promises freedom and peace. Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again the third day, the gospel. And so, an integral part of the gospel message is the fact of Christ's resurrection. Get that? An integral part of the gospel message is the fact 
of Christ's resurrection. I mean, after all, what good is a dead Savior? (laughs) A dead Savior can't save anybody. In fact, Christ's resurrection is so central to the gospel message that the Bible says that believing it is necessary for salvation. Do you understand that? Do you think it's possible that a person can believe that Jesus died, believe that Jesus was buried, but not believe, not have confidence that He was raised from the dead? Do you believe a person can be in that state and be saved? The Bible says it's not possible. In fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And so you're confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you're believing in your heart in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul writes that it is through that that you are saved. You're saved. Now, Paul said here in these first few verses, he says twice that I preached unto you. Verse 1. Verse 2, I preached unto you. Verse 3, I delivered unto you. First of all, that which I also received. Or he's saying, this gospel came through my preaching. This gospel came through my delivery. And he says that I delivered it unto you first of all. And that that phrase, first of all, means of first importance, of greatest importance, okay? That was what was most important. I delivered it to you. I preached it to you. But I want you to know, dear people, that the power and the effectiveness of this gospel that Paul preached and that Paul delivered was not so much... In how he preached it. It was not so much in his his good delivery. It was not. But this gospel was powerful. And this gospel was effective because of what it was and where it came from. That made all the difference. Now in Galatians chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul is talking about how he came to Christ. And how he received the gospel. And then what the journey looked like in his life following that. He says that, I want to make you aware, people, that I did not receive this gospel from man. I was not taught this gospel from man. But I received this gospel by revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the gospel powerful. That's what made this gospel that the Apostle Paul was preaching to the Corinthian church, that's what made it effective. This wasn't just some words, some wisdom that Paul was thinking up. This wasn't just a story. This was the truth of God found in the Word of God. And that made all the difference. And and I tell you, the same is true for each of us today. When we take the truth of God as it's found in the Word of God and we believe it, we will never be the same. It transforms our life from the inside out. 
The believers here at Corinth, they had received the gospel, they had believed the gospel, and it says that they were saved by the gospel. And the fact that they were now standing firm, it says, and wherein ye stand, the fact that they were now standing firm in that gospel gave proof to the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. So I say once again that their own salvation proved the validity of Christ's resurrection. Secondly then, the Old Testament scriptures prove the validity of Christ's resurrection. Now, you notice there in verses 3 and 4, we read this. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, according to the scriptures. Now, <laughs> you see, in our Bibles today, it's, it's all through the New Testament, obviously. But they didn't have the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul was writing this to the church at Corinth, they didn't have the New Testament. Okay? In fact, some of the, some of the Gospels hadn't, had not even been written yet. And here he's saying, you understand this according to the Scriptures. Or this has been told He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Now we look at that, and we are much more familiar with the Old Testament prophecies that point to Christ dying for our sins. Okay? That's more familiar to us. We get that. In fact, as we, as we look at the Old Testament, much of the sacrificial system that we find in the Old Testament points to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we start putting two and two together. You can see that. But also we have passages like Psalm 22 that we refer to as the Psalm of the Cross. That although it could have certainly been David's experience in life, yet you cannot overlook the fact that it is clear prophecy of what Jesus Christ would go through on the cross. Look at passages like Isaiah 53 that give much detail into the experience of what Jesus Christ went through in His suffering and His death. And so we understand that when it comes to Christ dying for our sins. But where in the Old Testament do we find reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And specifically on the third day. Paul says... That he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now children, I, I have a question for you. And this is a Bible story that you know. But this is an Old Testament Bible story about a man who was riding in a boat and then he found himself riding in a fish. Do you remember that story? Who was that man? It was Jonah. Did you know that Jesus, that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, refers to his death and resurrection, the three-day period? He points back to Jonah. He points back to Jonah. Do you know that? He sure does. Actually, Matthew 12, verse 40 says... 
For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I'm not going to go into this, but for your homework, you can do a little bit of searching and see what you come up with the three days and three nights. That's what the scripture says here, right? Three days and three nights. Jesus said that Jonas, Jonah was in the well's belly for three days and three nights, and he says that the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, enough said. But something to ponder, okay? Something to ponder. And so we have this account pointing back to to Jonah. In fact, the Jews had come to Jesus and they, they wanted a sign from him. And Jesus said, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Okay? And then that was it. I think Brother Marcus mentioned this morning in our sunrise service, The testimony of Job. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And I think he mentioned that, wow, Job was way ahead of his time, as it were. Job had a faith in a living Redeemer that one day he would stand and reign upon the earth. There's many other instances as we think about the Old Testament, how it prophesied that Jesus would not only die and be buried, but rise again on the third day. Turn quickly to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And here we know this passage, at least towards the end of the passage, we know it is the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus meets up with them. And we remember that these men are very downcast. They are very sad about the events that had taken place in Jerusalem. And Jesus meets up with them and acts like he's kind of acting dumb. He's acting like he doesn't know what the big stir is. And so then they, they, he said, like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And they told him what's, what's going on in Jerusalem. Verse 25, Jesus says, Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, and then note verse 32. After Jesus had vanished from their sight, They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Now move down to verse 44. And so here is the context of where the two men, then they ran back to Jerusalem and they met up with his disciples, with Jesus' disciples. And so here we have the group of them. And Jesus once again revealed himself to this group. Verse 44 And Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, 
And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Thus it is written, Jesus said. We also have the account in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the apostle uh, Peter is preaching here on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter refers back to Psalm 16. And he quotes a number of verses from Psalm 16. And we find it here. Let's just start at, at verse 24. Jumping into the middle of this story, Peter says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Once again, he's quoting from Psalm 16. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And then Peter says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He's saying, look here, people. We know that that the psalmist was not talking about himself. Because we know he died, we know he buried, and we know where his tomb is. His tomb is right here. He's not talking about himself. Who is he talking about then? Verse 30, Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, speaking of David, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before... Speaking of David, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. I mean, how much better do you need it? (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. He was making it clear to the people that David was not speaking about himself. David was speaking about Jesus Christ who was to come. Turn yet to Acts 13 as we consider this this Old Testament prophecy. But Acts chapter 13, and here the Apostle Paul is preaching. And jumping in at verse 32 of Acts 13. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, and this is Psalm 16 again, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep, or he passed away, he died, and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. Okay, so we have the apostle Peter defending the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we have the apostle Paul doing the same. But he, whom God hath raised again, saw no corruption. 
Be it known unto you, brethren, therefore men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. I say the Old Testament scriptures prove and give validity to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly then, many eyewitnesses prove the validity of Christ's resurrection. I mentioned before, back here in our text, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have the word seen five times. Seen. You have heard it said that seeing is believing. In fact, isn't that what Thomas said, basically? Thomas said, let me see, then I'll believe. Let me see. We say that seeing is believing. And you would understand that in a courtroom setting, there are few things as convincing as eyewitness accounts. People who stand up and say, I was there. I saw it with my own two eyes. And it's even greater evidence when you have multiple that say the same thing. I was there. I agree. I saw it. Convicted. I say there's few things that are as as convincing as eyewitness accounts. And here the Apostle Paul in Corinthians 15 gives a number of examples. The first he gives in verse 5 is, he says, Kephas, I think it's often said Cephas. As I looked it up, uh, the pronunciation seemed to be Kephas. But that is Peter. He's speaking of Peter. It means a stone, referring to Simon Peter. And then he says he was seen of the twelve. Now, at that point, it was probably only 11 because Judas was probably no longer with them, but they were known as the 12. And then it says he was seen of over 500 brethren. But he doesn't stop there. He gives, he gives more validity. This wasn't just 500 brethren at some time or other. First of all, he says all at one time. That's strong. And then he says that most of them are still alive. That's really strong. In other words, you could go ask them today. Some have died, but most of those 500 men that saw Jesus all at one time on the same day at the same moment are still alive. Go ask them. That's strong proof. And then he says that James saw him. That was Jesus' brother. And then he says all the apostles saw him. And then he says, I saw him. What does he say here? He says, verse 8, And last of all, he was seen of me also. And, and as I can picture the Apostle Paul as he's penning this, maybe he has to wipe a few tears. Maybe he gets a lump in his throat. As, as he considers his, his unworthiness, he says, And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. That idea, it has the idea of a miscarriage. It has the idea of abortion. It has the idea of unseatingly unworthy, or exceedingly unworthy. And that is the idea that the Apostle Paul, I am, I am exceedingly unworthy to have seen Christ. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And he goes on to mention the grace of God. There is so much that could be said, and there's so many different passages that we could go to, different ones in Acts even, uh, in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 10, once again in Acts chapter 13, that give more strength to the fact that Jesus Christ was seen after he was resurrected. After, yeah, after he was resurrected. And, and time does not permit us to go further But I do want us to ponder for just a few moments as we're talking here about eyewitnesses. You notice that the Apostle Paul starts with Peter and ends with himself. And I just want to draw that out just a little bit. Because as I think about Peter, I think about forgiveness. And as I think about the Apostle Paul, I think about grace. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote a lot about grace. And here he mentions grace three times in verse 10. But, you know, forgiveness was one of the themes that surrounded not only the cross, but it surrounded the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But I say forgiveness also surrounded the empty tomb. Forgiveness surrounded the resurrection You know, we remember Peter for his bold promises. We remember Peter for his good intentions. And yet we all know what happened. In the heat of the moment, Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. I never knew the man. Can you picture the face of Jesus as he turned back and looked at Peter? Can you hear the crow of the rooster? Maybe you can. Maybe that is real to you. Maybe you've been in that place before. Maybe you've been a Peter before in that situation. The scripture says that, in a sense, Peter was devastated. He went out and he wept bitterly. And I want you just to ponder that a moment. So that is, that is how Peter and Jesus parted ways. That is how they parted ways. And then Jesus went on to his death on the cross. Where was Peter? That was hanging over Peter. That was his dear friend. That was his Lord. It's hard to imagine the grief that Peter was dealing with at that point. In in his mind, perhaps it was all over. It was all over. And look how he had blown it. Look how he had made such a fool of himself. Look how he had denied his best friend when he had said he would never do that. And yet we see the forgiveness and the love flowing out of Jesus as the story goes on. Because there... As the women went to the tomb that morning, the angel told the women, I want you to go, the di- go and tell the disciples and tell Peter. I want you to tell Peter that I am risen from the dead and he can see me at this location. <laughs> can you imagine that? Okay, so he, he, he actually brought Peter into the conversation. He brought him out. Not just the disciples, but I want you to tell Peter. 
You see, our God is a God of forgiveness. Our God is a God of second chances. And can you imagine the, the swing of emotions that took place in Peter as he experienced that? There's an old classic gospel song written by Don Francisco that often rings in my ears around Easter time. It's a song that tells the story about Peter's journey and how he fell flat, how he denied Christ, and all of that, and how dark the time was for him. And the thing that just, that just resonates with me as I think about Peter And forgiveness is how that song ends. The song ends by the chorus bursting into repeated, repeated jubilation with, He is alive! He is alive! He is alive and I'm forgiven! Heaven's gates are open wide! That truly was the cry of joy that was flowing from Peter after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Truly forgiven says it all. Once again, we could go on and on, but we must move on yet. And let's just read the last few verses of this passage and make a few comments. Starting at verse 12. And in these few verses, Paul proves not only the validity of Christ's resurrection, but the subsequent resurrection of all believers by exposing the silliness of their supposition. Okay? Verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, let me just pause for a moment. You know sometimes how when we're trying to make a point, we're trying to prove something, we'll say, okay, I can tell you why this is true because of this, this, and this. And then there'll be some that say, I I don't get it. And then we'll try another tactic. We'll say, okay, if this, this, and this would be true, then this wouldn't be true. Okay, we use a different persuasive tactic. Okay, we first start with the obvious, and then we say, okay, you've lost your mind, basically. Okay, so if this, this, and this, then this couldn't be, right? And then they say, oh, Okay, you got me now. Well, Paul uses the same sort of tactic, the same sort of persuasion to show them the fallacy of their philosophy. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Whom he raised not up, if it so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Do you you see how these are so intertwined? You can't have one without the other, Paul is saying. (laughs) Verse 17. And if Christ be not raised... Your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. And that probably, that probably hurt a little bit. They said, if, if, if Christ is not raised, ye are still dead in your sins. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute now. 
maybe I'll think about this. <laughs> then they also which are fallen asleep or have passed away or are dead in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Or another way of saying that would be, we are to be pitied more than all men. And then, with much heart conviction, and with much certainty, the Apostle Paul pens, but now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. <laughs> wow, what, a, what an argument here. What a defense. Supposition. What am I talking about? Well, a supposition is an uncertain belief. A supposition is a belief that you cannot prove. It is something that is simply supposed. And there were some at Corinth Christian Fellowship <laughs> that believed that there was no resurrection of the dead. And the Apostle Paul then was addressing the foolishness of such a supposition. And he says it in this way, basically. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. Our preaching is worthless. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is vain. If Christ is not risen, our witness is vain. It's false. We're a bunch of liars. He says again, if Christ is not risen, your faith is vain. He goes on to say that if Christ is not risen, dying is vain. Living is vain. In fact, everything is vain. Everything is worthless if Christ is not risen from the dead. There's no point to live. What is life all about? I mean, everything is worth nothing if Christ is not risen. Zero in once again on verse 17 where he says, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Now, I want, I want us to follow Paul's logic point by point. And I quote, If there is no principle of resurrection, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has power over him and defeated him. If death has power over Jesus, he is not God. If Jesus is not God, he cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins. If Jesus cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins, our sins are not completely paid for before God. If my sins are not completely paid for before God, then I am still in my sins. Therefore, if Jesus is not risen, he is unable to save. And therefore, there is no forgiveness for sins. <laughs> wow. Point by point logic. Paul says it's impossible. It's impossible. If Christ is not risen from the dead. Let me bring one more thing out yet before we wrap this up. And that is in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. We read that. And, and I think most of all, no, I should say, I think most of us don't really understand what it means. I didn't for many years. What is he talking about? We don't use that. We don't, today in our modern English language, we don't talk much about first fruits. 
Because it sounds like Paul is trying to make, this is the clincher, okay? So we should know what he means, right? (laughs) Because if we don't know what it means, it just goes over our heads and we're like, it sounds nice. I mean, it sounds biblical, something you would say in church, but what's he saying? And Paul is mean to say, this is the end of discussion. I'm going to say this and you're going to say, got it. I believe, Paul. Let's go. But if we don't get it, we don't get it. So what is he saying here? But now is Christ risen? And here's the clincher. He has become the first fruits of them that slept. We're talking about laying a foundation for the dead being resurrected. And he first starts by proving Christ's resurrection. And now he is proving the resurrection of all believers. And he says, you can certify it because Christ was the first fruits of them that slept. Now, I quote, In the Old Testament, the offerings of first fruits brought one sheaf of grain to represent and anticipate the rest of the harvest. Now you can read that in Leviticus chapter 23. At the feast of the first fruits, the priest would wave the sheaf of the first fruits. This was, a, this was a, a, just a small part of the crop, okay? He would wave the sheaf of the first fruits before the Lord, signifying that the entire harvest belonged to him. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God's assurance to us that we shall also be raised one day as part of that future harvest. The feast of first fruits was observed on the day, get this, it was observed on the day after the Sabbath following Passover. Significantly, Jesus was the Lamb of God sacrificed on Passover. And he rose from the dead on the exact day of the Feast of Firstfruits, the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. You see how, how Scripture, you see how Scripture does. The offering at the Feast of Firstfruits was a bloodless grain offering. No atoning sacrifice was necessary because the Passover lamb had just been sacrificed. This corresponds perfectly with the resurrection of Jesus because his death ended the need for sacrifice, having provided a perfect and complete atonement. Wow. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept? And I just simply say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, let us end the morning in song. Brother Joe, you can come forward and and lead us in a couple songs, and then uh, we'll be dismissed.